0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com Welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, for Spectator's daily politics podcast. Evgeny Pogosian has just halted his march on Moscow, saying he's reached a deal with Vladimir Putin, but his troops will not be molested and they're going to return to what he calls their field bases. He's referring to two fairly large Russian cities now under the control of Wagner Group and no longer under control of Putin's authorities. So what is going on? I'm Fraser Nelson and I'm joined by two of my spectator colleagues, Professor Mark Gagliotti and Svetlana Morignyets. Mark, um, what have we just witnessed today?
1: It looks like a coup and I mean the idea that this is some kind of false flag operation which some still cling to seems increasingly implausible and it also looks like whether or not Prigozhin goes down in flames or whatever that in some ways this really is the the beginning of the end for the Putin system, however long that may take.
0: Right. And what we're seeing, Mark, I don't know, it's so difficult to tell what what to believe and what, what not to believe, but we're led to believe that Bajoran's... Um, Forces are something like 250 miles outside Moscow. We're seeing pictures of diggers digging trenches in the motorway, um, almost as if Moscow is preparing to, to find itself under siege. I mean, is is it plausible? I mean, it, and also, would we have expected the Russian military to have repelled them by now?
1: We would, except, of course, for the astonishing incompetence that so far the Russian military has been demonstrating for, well, ever since February of last year. Look, I think the thing is that one thing that Wagner does have is speed on its side. We have a very, very large, powerful, but ultimately lumbering dinosaur trying to deal with a small, fast, snappy predator. And I think this is the issue. If it comes to the point that the Russian military, the Russian security forces can actually bring their power to bear on Prigozhin, he's going to be in trouble. But so long as he's moving fast, up to now at least, the Kremlin has not really been able to catch him.
0: Svitlana, Ukraine have been fighting the Wagner Group and Bajoran's forces for quite some time now. Um, what is your reading about his objectives versus Putin's objectives? If this is a dispute about the prosecution of the war in Ukraine, then how, what implications might this have for the future of that conflict if one of these two guys were to prevail?
2: Yes, of course, everybody says that they are just w- watching and checking how it turns out in the end. And like Zelensky said that Russia, Putin receives what he deserves, but like our intelligence just talks about that he left uh, Moscow on his private plane and he is currently in his residence in Tver region. So we don't know if it is true, but like Ukrainian government stays silent. But of course, what is happening today, Russia uh, is an advantage for Ukraine, for for Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, Because while Russia is busy there, while Russian government is busy there dealing with the Wagner fighters, maybe Ukraine could advance much more than they did in the last weeks.
0: Mark, Medvedev's people have said that he's staying in Moscow. Putin's um, people have said that he's staying in Moscow, too. But we have seen some of his inner circles, such as oligarchs like Arkady Rottenberg and Vladimir Patanin, going to Baku and Istanbul. I mean, should we be looking out now for people beginning to leave Moscow, thinking that um, Bajoran might actually succeed?
1: Well, look, I I wouldn't be surprised indeed if if Putin had left Moscow. He does not so far demonstrate the kind of capacities to be the commander-in-chief who leads from the front. And I think the issue is not so much about whether or not individual oligarchs and the like clear out. That really is based on the fact that they they have no more idea really of what's going on than than the rest of us. Actually, the indicator we need to look for is defections from, from the military rather than anything else, that will tell us something about what's going on on the ground. Because these are people who basically have to make a decision between being on one side or the other. Whereas oligarchs and indeed officials can sort of waft themselves away to a safe location and just see how things develop.
0: We saw certainly when Bajoran moved into Rostov, there was very little, like no military resistance. I guess that leads us to suspect that this was pre-arranged with the military there. So some level of, of collusion. But what other things should we be looking for now? I mean, I, 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 the Chechens have said that they will rally to his defence, but we haven't heard uh, so far anyway. Many more people saying that they're on Bajoran's side here.
1: No, this very much reminds me of the very first day of the August coup back in 1991 when hardliners toppled Gorbachev and seemed to be trying to kind of roll history back to the Soviet Union. On that first day, nobody had a clue what was going on. Nobody knew who would win. And for example, the police force experienced a record number of people calling in sick as everyone decided, well, they didn't want to have to pick one side or the other. So they'd find a reason to stay out of it. When by the second day it had become pretty clear that in fact momentum was with the opposition, people like Boris Yeltsin, that's when suddenly everyone started to jump on their bandwagon and any kind of potential support for the coup collapsed. And I think this is what we're looking at now. Today is the day in which everyone's trying to work out whether or not this really, this has legs. Whether or not momentum is with Prigozhin or with Putin. And then tomorrow probably is when we'll actually see people making a decision one way or the other.
0: Spilano, we've seen videos of Ukrainian troops, one of them literally eating popcorn, watching this unfold on his iPads. But of course, Evgeny Prohoshin is not exactly somebody Ukraine's going to be cheering on. He has been fighting um, with staggering disregard for Russian lives, let alone Ukrainian ones, in um, Bakhmut. He is somebody whose criticism of Putin is that he hasn't been vicious enough in Ukraine. So I imagine that Kiev isn't exactly willing him to win this conflict.
2: For Russians, he is a good guy because he says that he cares about the life of every soldier that he has. Also, it's quite, it is not quite true seeing what he did in Bakhmut to, to take Bakhmut. How many soldiers uh, died? But also many people, not many, but some people outside of Russia see Prigozhin a kind of like revolutionary, big revolution, and that will change Russia and the war with Ukraine will be over. But that's not true, and Ukraine doesn't see it like that because Prigozhin has been re- repeating constantly that we need we will manage the, our problems with the Ministry of Defense in Russia, we will receive ammunition and all that we need, we will make a better strategy, and we will go back to Ukraine and we will continue the fight. So his goal is not like to end the war, he's not against the war, He he supports it, he just doesn't like the strategies that Putin chooses for waging this war.
0: Mark, I saw a video of Pajoran when he arrived in Rostov. He basically was standing outside the Russian military headquarters saying that things were um, much worse than he'd feared. He was saying that um, the Russian army was retreating in the Kershon, Ukrainian troops are advancing, that um, huge parts of Ukrainian territories have been lost by Russia, the casualties are three to four times what was being reported, up to a 1,000 killed a day. So... What does this tell us about the state of the counter-offensive? How much should we read into the fact that Bajoran is taking to the telegram channels and announcing that Putin's been making a lot worse progress in Ukraine than we've all been led to believe so
1: far? I mean, it it is difficult because it's a question of really which particular liar do you choose to believe more? I mean, but absolutely, I mean, what Bajoran has been doing is very publicly puncturing the Kremlin's narrative that everything is going fine and the counteroffensive is being pushed back on on, on every front. But also, I mean, let's be honest, this this will actually affect the counteroffensive. I mean, Wagner was being held back after Bakhmut, being reconstituted probably to use as a kind of reserve force to reinforce weak points in the line. And likewise, we're hearing tales, and look, there's all, there's all kinds of tales and rumours circulating at the moment, but nonetheless, credible ones suggesting that some of the relatively elite paratroopers who are also being kept as a reserve are being prepped for redeployment, maybe to, whether it's to defend Moscow or to take back Rostov or whatever. Every soldier that ends up being consumed by this internal struggle is a soldier who is not going to be on the line to push back the counteroffensive. Svetlana,
0: given that this has come at such a sensitive time in the counteroffensive, I imagine that Ukraine will be wishing above all else that it lasts for as long as it can, because every day that Putin and Brohojin are fighting each other is a day that their attention will not be on what's happening in Ukraine.
2: Yes, I mean, uh, Ukrainians hope that for Russia these problems last as long as they can, <laughs> so Ukraine actually can make a plan and continue with the counter-offensive. But uh, our general allusion he said today that everything is going according to plan. I don't know what he meant by that. It, it's the only comment that he said. So, But it's important to say that Russians, for now, are not running away from trenches, not going back to Russia... To fight for the government of Prigozhin, they are still holding their defense lines along the whole front, and uh, as of today, there were not a single reports that Ukrainian forces advanced or the Russians retreated. So everything like stays a bit frozen for now.
0: Mark, we've got on the Spectator website a map just showing um, the states of Prigozhin's advance towards Moscow. A state which looks pretty um, interrupted right now, but you can see, you know, two cities, a million people each, seemingly under Ragnar Group's control. How long do you think it's going to stay like this? I mean, could this be not exactly a frozen conflict, but could we be having to get used to this map of parts of Russia under Putin's control and parts that aren't? Or would you expect a far quicker settlement to all this?
1: I mean, I think it's unlikely that it'll last that long, not least just simply because of the boring necessities of logistics. Um, you know, th- there is a limit to how far Prigozhin's forces can live off the land and more to the point get fuel, let alone ammunition, for, for, their, for their systems. Ultimately, it is always logistics that sort of represents the, the key arbitrator of success in, 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 in battle. But more to the point, the longer it does go on, even if it's just a matter of a few days the extraordinary political blow it deals to to Putin, both domestically, but also in terms of his international partners insofar as he still has them. So, I mean, I I think that one way or the other, although I, I don't imagine that this will continue, this specific rebellion will continue, it does, I think, hold the Putin regime sufficiently far below the waterline that who knows what else we could see in the future. And finally, Mark, Rishi
0: has convened COBRA, his um, cabinet emergency meeting. I imagine one of the eventualities they'll be discussing is what happens in the event of a Russian implosion. This is, after all, a nuclear armed country, the last place on earth that you want anarchy to reign or to fall into the hands of people even more psychotic than Putin. So I imagine um, anarchy in Russia is a real um, risk right now.
1: It does. It does. Again, I mean, I I think there is an element of of performativeness about the COBRA meeting is that ever since COVID, everyone has been terrified of the question, well, why didn't you have a COBRA meeting? I think in this case, yes, of course, they will be concerned uh, about nuclear forces. But let's be perfectly honest. It's not as though if you take the Kremlin, you suddenly get control of the nuclear briefcase and the codes and and, and you can launch, launch missiles willy nilly there are still pretty formidable safeguards on that. I think it's more a question of the kind of the, the wider issue of, you know, chaos in Russia, what that could mean elsewhere.
0: Mark Galliotti and Svetlana Moronets, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for listening. And my special thanks to Natasha Feroz, who has produced this podcast for us today.